This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. The United Nations Security Council hears from U.N. agencies on the brutality faced by women and children in Ukraine. AP correspondent Tim McGuire. The head of UNICEF's emergency programs says two-thirds of Ukraine's children, close to five million children, have been forced from their homes in just six weeks by the Russian invasion. Manuel Fontaine says he's not seen so many children displaced in so short a time. Sima Bahas, the executive director of the U.N. Women Agency, says there have been increasing reports of rape and sexual violence against women by Russian troops and their allies. The combination of mass displacement with the large presence of conscripts and mercenaries and the brutality displayed against Ukrainian civilians has raised all red flags. Russia's deputy ambassador to the United Nations, Dmitry Polyansky, vehemently denies the allegations, accusing Ukraine and the West of carrying out an information war against Russia. I'm Tim McGuire. Meanwhile, Ukraine's southern parts, port city of Mariupol has been cut off for weeks as Russians have laid siege. Rescue workers pick through the rubble of a gutted apartment building. The charred husk of a tank sits jammed against a house. This woman who gave her name as Yevhenia says she's found the tank's most terrifying. Hearing and feeling their guns reverberate while lying on the ground trying to shelter. The mayor, Vadim Borchenko, says more than 10,000 civilians have died in the siege and the full toll could be twice that. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby says right now, it's impossible to verify the numbers. But if you just look at the imagery and you see how much the Russians have pounded Mariupol from the air, um, it, it's inconceivable to imagine that there aren't going to be civilian casualties and that it could be a significant number. I'm Ben Thomas. And this is VOA News. The U.S. has ordered consular staff to leave Shanghai amid a COVID outbreak. AP correspondent Mike Rossi explains. The U.S. has ordered its consular staff to leave Shanghai, which has gone into lockdown due to a resurgence of COVID-19. The State Department issued an order Monday night, which was an upgrade from the authorized departure issued last week that made leaving Shanghai voluntary. Under the new order, non-emergency U.S. government employees and their family members must leave U.S. Consulate General Shanghai. Additionally, the State Department issued a Level 3 China travel advisory, warning against travel to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, Jilin Province, and Shanghai Municipality due to COVID-19-related restrictions. Mike Crossio, Washington. Pakistan's parliament Monday elected opposition lawmaker Shabazz Sharif as the new prime minister following a week of political turmoil that led to the weakened ouster of Premier Imran Khan. As Sharif took the oath of office inside the stately white marble palace known as the presidency in a brief ceremony, but his elevation will not guarantee a peaceful path forward or solve the country's many economic problems, including high inflation and soaring energy crises. Uh, Sharif, the brother of disgraced former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, won with 174 votes after more than 100 lawmakers from Khan's Pakistan uh, or a Pakistan Justice Party resigned and walked out of the National Assembly in protest. French President Emmanuel Macron says that he wants to convince a broad range of French voters to back his centrist vision. On Monday, he kicked off a two-week battle against far-right challenger Marine Le Pen ahead of the country's presidential runoff. 
Le Pen, meanwhile, is ready for the fight, highlighting the rising prices for energy and food that have hit poor households, especially hard as uh, Macron has focused on trying to end the war in Ukraine. With the first round of the French presidential election over, all eyes are looking to the April 24th presidential runoff. Macron trounced Le Pen in the presidential runoff five years ago, but polls show that the far-right leader is much closer this time. The two candidates will hold a debate on French television sometime next week. U.S. President Joe Biden is taking a fresh aim at what's been called ghost guns, the privately made firearms with serial numbers that are increasingly cropping up in violent crimes. At the White House on Monday, Biden highlighted the Justice Department's work to finalize new regulations to crack down on the guns. He also announced the nomination of Steve Dettelbach, who served as U.S. Attorney in Ohio from 2009 to 2016 to run the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. There's more at voanews.com. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour... EU foreign ministers pledge to intensify delivery of weapons to Ukraine but disagree on the use of Russian oil. Energy issues are much more important in, in Central Europe than in the West part of Europe. This is a pure asymmetric shock. Pakistan's parliament elects opposition leader Shabazz Sharif as the new prime minister. The most critical challenge obviously is economy. Your Pakistan has been facing serious economic challenges or problems because of a lack of reforms over the years. And an all-women operated radio station opens in Somalia. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock says European Union foreign ministers plan to intensify the delivery of weapons to Ukraine. She made her comments after a meeting that led to new sanctions against Russia's interests. Also speaking after the talks, European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell said ministers could not agree on energy sanctions because of different levels of dependence on Russian gas within the 27-member bloc. Energy issues are much more important in, in Central Europe than in the West part of Europe. This is a pure asymmetric shock, and it has to be managed combining unity and solidarity. It's easy for some member states that are not using Russian gas to say that they are ready to not use Russian gas. But for others, which are heavily dependent, it's not so easy. Everybody has taken conscience of the big risk of this strong dependency. On sanctions, we continue discussing about how to implement the sanctions. To avoid any kind of loopholes, we measure the impact that these sanctions are having on the Russian economy, and we will continue discussing in order to see what else can be done. Nothing is off the table, including sanctions on oil and gas, but today no decision was taken. That's European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says Moscow will not pause its military operations in Ukraine for subsequent rounds of peace talks. Russian officials say peace talks with Ukraine are not progressing as rapidly as they would like and have accused the West of trying to derail negotiations by raising war crimes allegations against Russian troops in Ukraine, which Moscow denies. Speaking in an interview with Russian state television, Lavrov says he sees no reason not to continue talks with Ukraine 
but insists Moscow will not halt its military operation when the sides convene again. Lavrov says that President Vladimir Putin had ordered to suspend military action during the first round of talks between Russian and Ukrainian negotiators in late February, but that Moscow's position had changed since. The war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia are causing even more stress in an already strained global supply chain brought on by the pandemic. To see what this means to consumers and their wallets around the world, VOA's Elizabeth Lee went to the Rocky Point Farm in Frederick, Maryland, USA. Farming isn't easy. Like all farmers, Chuck Fry is at the mercy of the weather, but he never expected to have problems due to a pandemic and now a war in Ukraine. Fry is a dairy farmer, but he also grows crops, including barley and alfalfa. Most of it goes to feeding his cows. This planting season, the cost of doing business has skyrocketed. Fry used to pay around $330 for just over 900 kilograms of fertilizer. This year, it's more than $800. The problem started when the pandemic disrupted production and shipping. Then Russia, which produces many fertilizer ingredients, invaded Ukraine. That triggered more shipping disruptions, panic buying, hoarding, and other problems. The entire global supply chain slowed, much like highway traffic, says economist Chris Tang causing traffic jams and delays. Aaron Roby manages the Helena Frederick fertilizer plant. Fry says the price of diesel has more than doubled. His tractor holds 1,135 liters of fuel. Even before the most recent challenges, farmers were already experiencing disruptions in the global supply chain because of the pandemic. They say they were having a hard time finding medicines for their livestock because much of it comes from China. Container ships loaded with cargo from Asia were stacked up at U.S. ports last year. A trucker shortage further delayed deliveries of goods. More recently, COVID-19 cases have surged in China, prompting temporary lockdowns and plant closures. Observers expect disruptions at the world's largest container port in Shanghai, causing a ripple effect globally. Economist Chris Tang expects delays to continue. Chris Tang is an economist and supply chain expert at the University of California, Los Angeles. When supply decreases amid robust demand, prices increase, causing inflation. Back at the dairy farm, Fry says he's had to raise his ice cream prices by 10%. Like many farmers, Fry says he may have to cut back production to offset rising prices and keep the farm that has been in his family since the 1800s. Elizabeth Lee, VOA News. Frederick, Maryland. The U.S. government will not hold anything against African countries that did not support United Nations resolutions against Russia. That's the message from Derek Cholet, counselor of the U.S. State Department. Cholet advises U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on a range of policy matters, including the Russian-Ukraine conflict. He spoke to the host of VOA's Straight Talk Africa, Heidi Adams, in Washington, a day after the U.N. General Assembly voted 93 to 24 to remove Russia from the Human Rights Council. He says while now is not the time for neutrality, the U.S. recognizes African countries have many considerations when voting at the United Nations. Well, first, we're not taking notes. We understand these are sovereign decisions by countries, and the United States is in constant contact with most members of the United Nations around these critical votes to talk about our views and make the case for why we think it's important for countries to vote the way they do. We think Russia's expulsion from the UN Human Rights Council is completely justified, given what we are seeing out of Ukraine. I mean, the horrors we have seen 
in places like Bucha, and I'm afraid those are not the last of the horrors we're going to be seeing as the tide recedes inside Ukraine. And as Russian troops draw further, I think we're only going to uncover more atrocities, more crimes against humanity inside Russia. So it's quite significant that the United Nations took the step. Only the second time in the UN Human Rights Council's history is a country being removed from the Human Rights Council. Countries vote for different reasons, and some countries have long-standing relationships with Russia. Some countries are just trying to you know, navigate their way through this very difficult crisis. But yet we think that the overwhelming support of these UN General Assembly votes or the vote to expose Russia from the UN Human Rights Council sends a very clear message that the international community really is largely speaking with one voice here, that Russia's unprovoked, unjustified invasion of Ukraine needs to be condemned and there need to be high costs associated with it. That said, we understand that this puts, can put countries in a difficult situation. I mean, countries throughout Africa were already suffering from food crisis and food shortages, and this is only adding to that hardship. And so that's why the United States, working with others, is committed to doing whatever we can to try to mitigate the impact of the Ukraine war on global food prices, for example. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, sent a rather clear message when she said that there is no room for neutrality on the Russia-Ukraine issue. It makes one think of 2001 when then-President George W. Bush told the world that you're either with us or against us in the war on terror and that there was no room for neutrality then. Is this going to be America's approach at any point? We just think given what's going on uh, in Ukraine and Russia's unprovoked, unjustified, brutal war against Ukraine, the cost on thousands, millions of civilians that the world needs to speak out against this. This is, this is a very different situation than 20 years ago and the debates around the Iraq war. And this conflict is not just a conflict that's affecting Ukraine. It's not just affecting Europe, it's affecting the world because the principles at stake, the principles of sovereignty, the principles that states can choose their own destiny. Those are principles that every country throughout Africa and all around the world needs to, needs to try to uphold. So we don't think this is a time for business as usual. We do not think this is a time for neutrality. We think this is a time that we need to stand together to do whatever we can to support Ukraine, but also ensure that Russia pays a very high price for its decisions. That's Derek Cholet, Counselor of the U.S. State Department, speaking with my colleague, Katie Adams. A United Nations agreement aimed at sparing populated areas from explosive weapons is near completion and is expected to be finalized in early June. Some 200 delegates from more than 65 states participated in negotiations last week at the United Nations European headquarters in Geneva. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA. The new international agreement would oblige states to reduce harm to civilians by limiting the use of explosive weapons, including airstrikes, multi-barrel rocket systems, and mortars in cities and towns. These weapons are designed for use in open battlefields and have devastating consequences when used in populated areas. An NGO coalition, the International Network on Explosive Weapons, reports the use of heavy explosive weapons in cities and towns kills and wounds tens of thousands of civilians every year and lays waste to civilian infrastructure. This is borne out by recent data from Ukraine, Ethiopia, Iraq, Gaza, Yemen, 
and Syria, where 90% of the victims were civilians. Despite the heavy toll caused by these weapons, the network reports that several states, including Belgium, Canada, Israel, Turkey, Britain, and the United States, sought to weaken the text of the agreement. The coordinator of the International Network on Explosive Weapons, Laura Boileau, says these states argue that the new agreement should reaffirm what international humanitarian law already obliges them to do and not go beyond that. Without mentioning Russia by name, Boileau says more is needed. The situation in Ukraine where we're seeing extensive use and widespread use of a range of different explosive weapons from airdropped bombs, rocket systems, missiles into major towns and cities in Ukraine is making it very difficult for states to to not take this issue seriously. Boileau notes there were strong calls for a more humanitarian-centered text by states such as Chile and Mexico, Togo and Nigeria, as well as Austria and New Zealand. Alma Taslidzan is the network's civilian advocacy manager. She says discussions are still ongoing regarding the extent of assistance to victims. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, extreme rainfall in Southeast Africa has become heavier are more likely to occur during cyclones because of climate change, according to a new analysis released Monday by an international team of weather scientists. Multiple tropical storms that pummeled Madagascar, Malawi, and Mozambique earlier this year were analyzed by the World Weather Attribution Group, who determined that the storms were made worse by the increase in global temperatures. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vunnews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. Pakistan's parliament has elected opposition lawmaker Shabazz Sharif as the new prime minister following a week of political turmoil that led to the weekend ouse of Premier Imran Khan. Analysts say his elevation won't guarantee a peaceful path forward or solve Pakistan's many economic problems, including high inflation and an energy crisis. Sharif, the brother of disgraced former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, won with 174 votes after more than 100 lawmakers from Khan's party walked out of the National Assembly in protest. On the challenges facing Sharif, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gaw. The most critical challenge, obviously, is economy. Pakistan has been facing serious economic challenges or problems because of a lack of reforms over the years. So the balance of payment issue, Pakistan, you know, has been relying on China to address its balance of payment issue. And, you know, other countries have been giving loans to Pakistan. There is an understanding with the International Monetary Fund. So because of all these liabilities and compulsions, previous government faced serious issues in order to deal with these rooted economic challenges. And now this is going to be the topmost priority, whether he will be able to tackle them and win some support from the population, which is already complaining about this high inflation. Obviously, then the foreign policy matters are going to be another serious challenge for the Shahbaz Sharif government, especially the relationship with the United States. Has the new prime minister signaled what his priorities and his policies will be? 
After being elected in the National Assembly, he addressed quite long address to the parliamentarians and it was televised to the nation where he definitely explained how he's going to tackle these challenges, especially on the economic front. And he also announced quick relief package for uh, uh, people, the government servants and other increase in pensions. Because of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, over the last two years, inflation has really gone up and lower middle class has been really suffering and complaining and it was complaining against the previous government and that complaint is still in place. Whether these package that Sharif announced today would help address in the short term these complaints, we don't know yet. But he was quite confident that he will try to seek better relationship with the United States and especially Saudi Arabia. And he also mentioned that Pakistan also wants a reduction in tensions with rival India. The new prime minister promised that he intends to conduct a high-level investigation into these allegations by the outgoing prime minister, Imran Khan, that this change in government was instigated, according to Khan, uh, by the United States. He dismissed those charges as a complete lie, but at the same time, he promised to look into this so-called memo or uh, this uh, cipher message that the Pakistani ambassador from Washington had sent. Talking about a new prime minister and his relationship with uh, the former prime minister and his party, there were reports of a walkout in parliament today by what is essentially the majority party that is not in government. How is the new prime minister navigating that? This morning they resigned from the parliament, so all... Prime Minister Khan's lawmakers have resigned from the Assembly. This is the first time that the largest single force in the Parliament has resigned. So they're not going to be inside the Parliament. So there's no way for the new Prime Minister reach out to Imran Khan because he's not willing even to sit inside the Parliament with this new government. And that's what they said today. Imran Khan said it clearly that there's no way that he is going to allow himself or his party members to sit in this parliament that he said is a compromised system now and that it has been installed now with the help of the United States as he alleged and repeatedly has been alleging. So there's no way that there can be any political reconciliation that we see as of this moment and he seems determined to take it to the streets of Pakistan and create some kind of a challenge for the government where, you know, we may see a lot of violence in coming days. I mean, that's what it looks like as of this moment. That's viewers Ayaz Gal speaking with me from Islamabad. The economy, national security and climate change are expected to be key issues when Australians vote in a general election on May 21st. Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the date Sunday after visiting Australia's Governor General in Canberra. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Experts say the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and natural disasters, as well as national security, climate change and health care, will all influence Australian voters. But they believe the election on May 21 will ultimately be decided by one issue, the health of the Australian economy. The centre-right coalition government, led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, is seeking its fourth term in office while the opposition Labour Party is hoping to win a federal election for the first time since 2013. Opinion polls have suggested Morrison will lose. The Prime Minister did, however, defy pollsters' predictions when he won the so-called miracle election in 2019. The government's campaign spokesperson Anne Rushton, who's the Social Services Minister, 
believes its chances of winning on May 21 are good. What I'm absolutely focused on and what the, the government is focused on is telling Australians about our plan for a strong economy, for a strong future. And I think, you know, on almost any measure, Australia's recovery from the pandemic has been world leading. But, you know, we are absolutely focused on telling the Australian public our plan for the future, making sure that they understand that we've got a very strong track record here. The opposition Labor leader is Anthony Albanese, who presents himself as a measured, gently progressive alternative to the governing Conservative coalition. He's promising decisive action to curb global warming. We take climate change seriously and see it as an opportunity, not just a challenge. You'd have 82% renewables by 2030. You'd create 604,000 new jobs and you'd reduce energy prices. We'd use that to create new industries, to create jobs in manufacturing in particular. Remarkably, Scott Morrison is the first Australian Prime Minister to serve a full term in office since John Howard in 2007. Previous Prime Ministers on both sides of politics have fallen victim to internal party room coups. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Somalia's first women-run radio and television outlet has opened in the capital Mogadishu. United Nations-supported Bilan Media will produce content aimed at addressing issues affecting women and champion women's rights in the conservative country. Ahmed Mohamed Adan reports from Mogadishu. Bilan means bright and clear in the Somali language. And the founders say they will stay true to its meaning by shedding light on some of the most consequential issues relating to and affecting women. Nasra Mohamed Ibrahim is the editor at Bilan Media. This project is designed to overcome many challenges facing the community, she says. It will focus on the challenges facing women. She says there are stories about women which will be revealed because there are a lot of stories in the community and they don't allow them to be published. So Pilon will reveal those stories. By going all female, Bilan hopes to break the barriers in Somalia's conservative society where the issues such as rape, sexual assault and women's medical issues are often ignored. Bilan says it does not seek to compete with the mainstream media, but to chart its course in elevating the voices of women and influencing the agenda in the male-dominated society. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu. has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at VONews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedofo in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On March 29th, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, launched the 2022 Joint Response Plan for the Rohingya Humanitarian Crisis. The United Nations seeks more than $881 million in donations to support some 1.4 million Rohingya refugees living in camps in eastern Bangladesh. U.S. Ambassador to Bangladesh Peter 
Haas, announced on March 29th that the United States would deliver $152 million in additional humanitarian assistance for those in Bangladesh, Burma, and elsewhere in the region affected by the Burmese military's genocide, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing of Burma's Rohingya minority, said State Department spokesperson Ned Price in a written statement. Since August 2017, when over 740,000 Rohingya were forced to flee to safety in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, the United States has responded with over $1.7 billion in assistance, including the recently announced $152 million tranche. More than $125 million of this latest sum is earmarked for programs specifically in Bangladesh. Some of the money will help our humanitarian partners provide life-saving assistance to the over 920,000 Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. It will also provide support to more than 540,000 members of the local host community in Bangladesh who are affected by the crisis. Some of the funding will go toward providing families with food, health care, access to clean water and sanitation to prevent the spread of disease. It will support the protection of Rohingya refugees' human rights and well-being, help strengthen disaster preparedness, and help combat the effects of climate change. Likewise, we understand that education and income-generating activities are among the most effective methods to create safer refugee camps in Bangladesh. This is just one of the reasons why some of the funding will go toward ensuring that children and young adults have access to education and vocational training. The United States recognizes that Bangladesh and its people have taken on an enormous responsibility in hosting refugees, said spokesperson Price. We are working with the government of Bangladesh, Rohingya, and people within Burma toward finding solutions to this crisis, including the safe, voluntary, dignified, and sustainable return and reintegration of Rohingya refugees and internally displaced persons when conditions in Burma allow. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, bam, bam.